ask that you take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, or 53, Isaiah chapter 53, our text this morning is verses 10 through 12, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. Follow along with me as I read. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession or the transgressors. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you now. We come because of the work of Jesus Christ alone. He alone is the door by which we enter into your presence. He alone is the shepherd who guards the gate into your flock. He alone is the sacrifice for sin and the provider of righteousness. With the psalmist we declare, righteous are you, O Lord. Right are your rules, your ways, your word. We pray that our zeal would be consumed by pursuing you and your righteousness. For your righteousness is forever, and your word is true. And though trouble and anguish often find us, we are small and despised, that you have not forgotten us. You have given us your word, the word that declares to us the living word, Jesus Christ. And in him we have redemption. Forgiveness of sins. In Him, Your Word becomes our delight. In Him, we have understanding so that we might live. and might live forever. So today, we pray as we come to this text, as we look at these three verses, may they remind us that our righteousness is in Christ alone. We stand in Him complete. No work of our own to boast in. No work of our own to fail in, for we have already failed utterly. And yet Christ's work is completely sufficient to the task of saving His people. So we come today to see anew for some, 
come today to see and be refreshed, brothers, as we look into the face of your servant, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. May I present him and this passage faithfully and clearly. For I too am one of the transgressors that he was numbered with. And I need to see his face and be reminded of his work. We all do. So may we see it clearly and may he be exalted in our midst. And we pray this not for ourselves alone, but for your church all across this globe. Oh Lord, may Jesus be exalted by your people today. As we have lifted up our voices, we join the throngs across this globe that are singing today and those that are singing in heaven along with all the angelic beings. We join in praise of Him who is worthy, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We look into Your Word. We look into things that are glorious and good. Things that the angels desire to understand such a mystery as salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As the the church in heaven now experiences the fullness of it in your presence forevermore. As we who, who have as your church here on earth have, have, have felt the, the newness of life that comes through this gospel. And now we look again to taste and see and savor. Even in the midst of a dark and broken world. Yes, may your church rejoice today. For our righteous one lives and provides to us his righteousness so that we too might live in him. Specifically, I want to pray for Mission Church and Pastor Errol as we meet today. Pray for Mosaic and Pastor Eric as they meet today. Lord, may, may they see and taste and savor Jesus Christ and all his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're wrapping up our sermon series entitled The Works of Christ Alone. Save here these messianic prophecies from Isaiah 52 and 53. And over the last two weeks, we've seen the work of Christ that reveals his salvation and that humanity's only assurance in finding salvation and knowing salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. And we even see that in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, all All of God's salvation points to the culmination of Jesus Christ as the Savior, the Messiah, the long-awaited One. Last week we looked at the work of Christ that bears our sins, and Christ is humanity's only assurance of defeating sin. And Only in Christ can we have our sins uh, not only forgiven, but completely and utterly paid for, all punishment removed. And it was not our right to lay our sins upon Him. 
It is our right to pay for our own sins, to stand before God and have to answer. And yet we read in Isaiah 53, 6, that the Lord laid on him our iniquities. You see the grace that God gives to undeserving people so that He, he Jesus Christ, bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. And while we were gone away, while we were turned everyone to His own way, yet Jesus comes to save us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. For our sin, even as the prophet Isaiah affirms in 9 that He had done no violence, there was no deceit in His mouth. And that leads us into verses 10-12. through 12. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. So today we're looking at this, the works of Christ alone that save. The title of the sermon is the work of Christ that makes us righteous. The works of Christ that make us righteous. And we are in desperate need of the righteousness that only Christ can bring, as I hope we will see today. main point is that Christ is humanity's only assurance of being righteous. So not only does the work of Christ make us righteous, as the title suggests, but the main point in this is that Christ is humanity's only assurance of being righteous. The only means by which we can be righteous is if Jesus Christ makes us So we're going to ask our three questions here. What is humanity's future apart from Christ? And how does Christ bring assurance, specifically assurance of being made righteous? And then how should humanity respond to this? How should we react to the fact that Jesus Christ alone can make us righteous? So our first question here, what is humanity's future apart from Christ? As we look to this text, and we see ourselves being described in this text, he gets far more specific than he ever has been. Prior to this, Isaiah, in in, in our section here at least, in, in the last part of 52 that we looked at, in the first part of 53, he describes our iniquities, the fact that we have committed sins. But he hasn't come out and necessarily named us as such. Here he does the end of verse 12, we see that Jesus is numbered with whom? He is numbered with the transgressors. All right, if you haven't, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Isaiah says, you know, all your sinfulness, all your wickedness, all your iniquities, all your transgressions, if you haven't picked up yet on who you are, let me just tell you. You are transgressors. Not only once does he say this, but twice, yet he bore the sins of many, making intercession for the transgressors. Jesus does not come to make the well well, but make the sick well. He does not come to save righteous people. He comes to save sinners. And that is what we are. And so what is humanity apart from Christ? Each person is unrighteous before God apart from the work of Christ. We are transgressors. Unrighteous people. Unable 
to meet God's holy requirements. That's what Paul writes and says. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. We cannot, we cannot meet the righteous requirements that God has placed over us. I've uh, probably shared the illustration before, and I've heard it many times preached. And but right, I think it's I think it's a really good illustration to help us understand righteousness. Imagine we were all to take a trip to the Grand Canyon. All right, we'll I'll rent a big big uh, probably two or three buses actually. Say a big big bus. We'd have to squeeze in. So maybe two or three buses. We all take a trip out there, all right? It would be a crazy ride. I don't know how many hours it is to get to uh, the Grand Canyon, but it would be longer than you probably want to sit in the van with most of us, all right? And we take that trip all the way out there. He said, now we've come out for one reason and one reason alone, all right? We are going to see which one of us can jump across the Grand Canyon, all right? Let's see, all right? So we all take our line, go, I jump. I make a very, very, very little way out, you know, and I'm plummeting down. Tom, though, he gets really, I mean, he's this runner in great shape. He jumps, he runs, he jumps, he's way farther than me. And yet, he still plummets to the same bottom that I plummeted to, right? That's, that's a picture of God's righteous requirements, His righteous requirements are far beyond any of us. In fact, it's what Jesus tells His disciples as they look at the Pharisees who are are these hypocrites and yet they're seeking, they're striving very hard to keep God's righteous requirements that are written in the law. And Jesus tells them, unless your righteousness supersedes, is greater than that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. His righteous requirements are far beyond it. And in that scenario, I mean, we, we look back and we know how hypocritical they are. But in that day, the Pharisees were thought of as the most righteous of people. And so, I mean, you're asking me to be more righteous than them? I'm already done, all right? I'm just going to walk away, okay? Give up on that now. But what does Jesus do in that statement? Not only does he tell the person who's not as righteous as the Pharisee, you can't do it. He tells the Pharisee, you can't do it. Because all that you've done thus far to be as righteous as everyone else thinks you are is still not enough. You might be able to jump as far as Tom. I don't know. You know I can't judge everybody's physical you know, status just by looking at you. You might be able to jump as far as him, but none of you are going to make it to the other side. And that's why we're called here transgressors. Because that's who we are. We fall short of God's righteousness no matter how hard we try. This is the future of humanity apart from Christ, is that we will continue in our sins. We will continue to be transgressors and then must stand before God. And as He calls to account all the things that we have done in this life, we will fall short. Apart from the work of Christ, we will all stand before God as un. Righteous. 
So then how does Christ bring assurance? Our second question. How does Christ bring assurance? Christ knowingly provides all the righteousness God demands and humanity desperately needs. Christ knowingly provides all the righteousness God demands and humanity desperately needs. In our text today, um, there's been a lot of debate about which pronouns belong to who. And, uh, and then, in turn, there's been some debate about the understanding of verse 11. And that's really where we're focused on when we're talking about this righteousness that Christ provides. My understanding of the pronouns is in 10, yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. And he, the Lord, has put Jesus Christ, him, to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, the Lord, shall see his offspring. He, the Lord, shall prolong his Christ's days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in the hands of Jesus. It is out of the anguish of Jesus' soul that the Lord shall see and be satisfied. And by Jesus' knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now the understanding of knowledge there could be taken two ways. It could be the knowledge of Christ, or it could be our knowledge of Him. So there's one that's passive and one that's active. Actively, our knowledge of Christ. So there's a command, a call for us here. Or passively, it's Christ's knowledge. And my answer here kind of gives away what I think it is. I think this is Christ's knowledge. The way that the context uses His soul and His days and His offspring, the parallel seems to be His offspring, His days, His hand, His soul, His knowledge. It is the knowledge of Christ. It is Christ knowingly providing the righteousness that God demands and humanity desperately needs. And why is that significant? Why is that important? See, we already already looked at the fact that, that Jesus Christ was sinless and therefore provides the sinless sacrifice necessary in order for God to be able to truly punish Him and not us. Because if, if He were sinless, He would have to pay for His own sins. Saw that last week. This week, now we see this truth that is brought about that he's able to make many righteous. And how is he able to make many righteous? Because he knows exactly what God demands. He knows it exactly. And he knows how short we fall. And he is able to provide all the righteousness necessary to make us acceptable before God. Just like we could go out and we could measure the distance of the Grand Canyon from one side to another, you know, different spots. We can find the shortest one. And we can realize that, man, there is no way I'm going to jump this, okay? Like we can measure that. We can find out. I mean, that's knowledge that we can have. And the same thing's true. We, We don't always understand the grandness of God's righteousness, of His holiness, of His justice. We don't always stand, understand how far it is we have fallen from His grace. But you know who does? Jesus. Jesus knows exactly how far we have fallen. And so if we, if we somehow try to trust our own ability to meet God's righteousness, guess what we're always going to wonder? I do enough? Was that enough? Have I arrived yet? 
Have I done all that is necessary yet? Have you known anybody like that? I have. I know a lot of religions that preach that. A desire to keep people on this cycle of trying to demonstrate their righteousness, prove their righteousness, earn their righteousness. This text says, the righteousness you need, Jesus knows. He knows. Not only does He know what God demands, He knows how desperately we have fallen from it. And here we read, He makes many to be accounted righteous. Christ knowingly provides it all. He makes people this. Right? They don't work for it. They don't earn it. You can't go to Mass enough. You can't say enough confessions and penance. Like You can't speak in tongues enough. You can't do good works enough. You can give all your money to the poor, and yet that is not enough. You can give your life on the mission field, and it's not enough. Only Christ makes people righteous. How does He do this? Jesus sacrifices Himself on the cross as a guilt offering. It says here in verse 10, His soul makes an offering for our guilt. For our transgressions. The transgression offering. There's a lot of allusions here in all of 53 to the different types of offerings that Israel is meant to give. And this is one of those offerings that they were meant to give. And this was an offering that an individual would come and give. There were offerings for the sin of the nation that were offered uh, daily and on different occasions. But this specific offering was one that, uh, that a person who maybe even sinned and didn't uh, know he sinned was was. Wondering whether he sinned or not, he would bring in this guilt offering, this transgression offering. And yet, we're told here that Jesus not only fulfills the, the sin offering, but also the transgression offering, the guilt offering on behalf of his people. He sacrifices himself, which is what we read in 11. He makes many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That in in this imputation of our sin on Himself, Jesus in turn imputes onto us His righteousness and that transaction occurs on the cross. As He bears our sin, He gives us His righteousness. It is this transaction that occurs that makes all of His people Righteous, so that when we look to the cross and Jesus declares it is finished, it truly is. All sin born on him, all righteousness given to his people. No one who is his will ever lack for righteousness. How does he do it? He does it by sacrificing himself on the cross. And why could he do this? Because Jesus is the righteous one. no coincidence that when 
Isaiah is given this word of God regarding how he makes people righteous that God declares to him that his servant is described as the righteous one. The one full of righteousness. So much so that he is able to conquer sin and his righteousness is not depleted. So much so that he's not only able to conquer sin so that his righteousness is not depleted, but then he's able to give, mead out his righteousness to his people. And yet still, he is the righteous one. I mean, this is a guy who's got righteousness to spare. I mean, he's making righteousness reign here. All right? That's what he's doing. He's like, I I got more. You, need, you, you don't even need more, but I got more. That's who he is. He is the righteous one. And no one can say any different about him. In fact, people tried. People tried to, as he lived on earth, they tried to stain his righteousness, but yet, guess what? They could not. And after some mock trial, this Gentile leader of that area who has no who has no game in this. Like he's got no stake here. He's I find no fault in him. I mean you presented me all the evidence. I don't see anything here. He is the righteous one. And this is why he can make his people righteous. How do we know he accomplished this? How do we know he accomplished this? Well, our text highlights this as well. As we look at verse 10, when he makes his soul as an offering of guilt, the Lord shall see his offspring. All right? Now, Jesus' offspring, you're like, wait a minute. He didn't have any kids. What is he talking about? Talk about us. All those who put their faith in Christ. We are his descendants. He is, he is as the, as the uh, prophecy of the, 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 the new birth, uh, the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ says, um, he is the eternal father. Have you ever wondered why it says that? Wonderful counselor. He's the eternal father because Jesus is the offspring of many children the offspring of the church. He's the head of the church and we are all his spiritual children. We are all his. And so as as the Lord sees this offering that Jesus gives on the cross, he sees his offspring. He sees the, the, the ones accounted righteous who once were transgressors. And he goes on to say, and then he, the Lord, shall prolong his days. You say, wait a minute, Jesus died on the cross, didn't he? Yeah, but he rose again. Prolonging days is a promise throughout the Old Testament. But ultimately, uh, many Jews looked at that promise of prolonging of days as not not just lengthening of their physical life, but rather the promise of eternal life in the future. I mean, this is what Martha brings up when Jesus says, do you believe in eternal life? Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And she's like, surely I do. Jesus said, well, let me show you what that looks like. All right? There's Jesus risen from the dead. Now, 
you know, if, if, you, if you like it, the, the, the pronouns to, to the he's to be referring to Jesus, that's fine too, because, you know, Jesus sees us as well. And Jesus raised himself from the dead. The Father raises him from the dead, and Jesus himself raises himself from the dead, we're told in the Gospels. I mean, they're both God, right? We're Trinitarian here, all right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The power of God is the power of God, and all three persons of God wield that power equally. I think, I think it refers to within context the Father. The Father prolongs his days and in prolongs his, prolonging his days in bringing him back from the dead. And Jesus, is, Jesus taking the power of life back up in his hands after being dead. Jesus proclaims that he is able to make people righteous and give them eternal life. And that is the power of the resurrection He's able to meet out life to his people, give them new life, and with it, his righteousness. And the only reason we are able to have that eternal life is not just because Jesus proclaims it true of us, but because Jesus has made us to be accounted righteous before the Father. And in his death, Jesus justifies us so that we have a right standing before God forever. So how should we then respond? How should humanity then respond? Well, our text here is somewhat indirect about our response. I think we can look in verse 12 where he says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and then in turn, he shall divide that spoil with the strong. I think there's an implication here that we are meant to desire this portion that Jesus gives. We are meant to long for it, to pursue it. The portion that, that, that the Father has given to the Son, and now the Son gives to his people, which he's able to do because he was poured out his soul to death. He was numbered among us, and now he is able to share his salvation with us. I think indirectly we can see our response there, but I think as we understand the, that the, the, the book of Isaiah, these prophecies aren't uh, contained in and of themselves. I mean, we, we've been walking through the last part of 52 and, and all of 53, but we have to realize that Isaiah continues on. And as, as he continues on, if your heading is like my heading for, for chapter 54, it's described as the internal covenant of peace that is now uh, described here. And I would encourage you to read over chapter 54, but I want us to go to chapter 55. And as, as they presented the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the only one who can reveal salvation to us, the only one who can bear our sins, the only one who can provide for us the righteousness we so desperately need, Isaiah culminates in this huge response in chapter 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, because we don't, no righteousness, no no way to earn this or pay for it. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Oh, so crazy. You have no money? Come buy and eat. What? How do you buy without money? That's the faith we're meant to have. 
in the work of God through Jesus Christ. All right, I'll come and take it. Give it to me. Like, I, I know how to eat, obviously. So I'm like, yes, let's do it. Let's, I love that analogy because I can totally get into that. Other people get into other analogies in Scripture. I totally get into this. Let's come and eat together. This glorious goodness of Jesus Christ. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love. For David. Covenant he has with David, the love he has with David, I will make with you if you but come. So my answer here is that each person must come to God, listen to his good news, and partake of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Eat to your fill of it. He provides all that you need. Or we could jump down to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 55. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Why? Because we have all turned everyone to our own way. Forsake your way. Forsake the thoughts you think are right. It's not saying here, get better. Do better. Be better. Wicked person, forsake your ways by being better. No, it's saying you can't do it. Your way won't work. There's only one way, and that way is Jesus Christ. Come seek the Lord, forsake your way. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God that he will abundantly pardon. Each person must seek God. Call upon Him and turn to the saving work of Christ alone. The opportunity is here for you today to seek Him. You're hearing, you're hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ right now. Call upon Him, and as you call upon Him, turn from your own way. Turn from ruling your own life. Turn from living a, a voluntary slave to sin and turn to Christ. Alone. As we return to God, He will abundantly pardon. For He has, He has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. So how can we respond? If you're a member, a member of gospel community, if you're a member of gospel community, there's a number of ways to respond. But if you're not, if you're not a member of gospel community, then you need to come to faith in Him today. The way we connect this to everyday life is by submitting to Jesus Christ for our salvation. So being a member of gospel community doesn't mean you're a member of a church necessarily. 
Not what I'm asking. Good to be a member of a church, a good church that preaches the gospel. God desires his people to be a visible part of the representation of his body. And what I'm asking here is not whether you're a member of a local church, but rather are you a member of God's people? Are you a member of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you a member of his family? Is Jesus your father so that when God looks at his offspring, he sees you? Because you trust Christ alone for your salvation. That in his death, he paid for your sins and gave you his righteousness. Second question, what can we know about God? So those of us who are members of gospel community, what can we know about God from this? We should be able to see God's holiness and justice in this. That it is unmovable because it's perfect. His law is so honorable. The rights of His government so sacred that such a sacrifice as the Son of God is necessary to fulfill the righteous requirements that we need. And this this should help us understand how gloriously good Jesus is to us. God's righteousness is so pure, only perfect righteousness is acceptable. Nothing Or no one loves righteousness like God does. Loves holiness like God does. Loves justice like God does. And as he looks at Jesus, he sees his perfect righteousness. And as he looks at us, he sees transgressors. But as he looks at us through his son, he sees us in his righteousness. We are dressed in his righteousness. That is because we see that God is perfect in His righteousness. No one holds it as sacredly as He does. How can we enjoy God in light of this? It's that Jesus gives us His righteousness. It's like the best Christmas present ever for His people. I mean, you know, sometimes you get Christmas presents you're not that thankful for, right? Not that happy with, man, I wanted the blue one and they gave me the red one. That's not the case here. Like he gives us, he knows exactly what we need and he gives us perfectly what we need. And we're meant to find our satisfaction in that. We're, We're meant to open up this present and be like, yes, this is what I always wanted and what I always needed. Now I can be right with God. Now I can live out His purposes. Now I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus, created for good works, things that I could not do before. Now I can have the Spirit living within me. And when He lives within me, I'm able to express love, joy, and peace, righteousness, meekness, gentleness, self-control in ways I never could before. Because I have the righteousness of If you're a follower of Christ, you possess the righteousness of Christ. and You share in this treasure. We got out the, the greatest treasure map ever. And we're like, all right, who's going to be a part of this? All right, if you're a part of this, 
When we get to the end, you get your share, you get your cut. We get a, we get a share in this treasure. That's what we gain in Christ. And then thirdly, how can we glorify God? Or for, the fourth question, how can we glorify God? Trusting in His gift of righteousness. Trusting in His gift of righteousness. Which means what? It means it includes resting in it when we sin or are tempted to sin. Rest in His righteousness alone. Not our righteousness, it's His. We rest in His. When we sin, we come in confession, trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we're tempted to sin, we fight against it because we have the righteousness of Christ. This includes living in righteousness every day. We can't just say, well, I have the righteousness of Christ. Go ahead, Christ, do that. No, the righteousness of Christ fuels us, enables us, empowers us to then be able to live, live for Him. We have this gift within us given by His sacrifice alone. And we gain this new life by His righteousness. So therefore, let us walk in His righteousness as we live by the Spirit of Christ's righteousness living within us. So let us walk by Christ's righteousness living within us. Spirit of God. Embodiment righteousness in us. We can bring Him glory as we remember the righteousness that found in Christ. In Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the gift of Your righteousness. And the opportunity now as we sing to worship You in righteousness and glory and the opportunity today, the glorious opportunity here on Easter Sunday and every first Sunday of the month that we celebrate it, to celebrate communion. Trusting that in Him, in Him alone, we have our redemption, that His body was broken for us, His blood shed for us, transgressors, so that we might To him be all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.